Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 10. We're going to be reading together verses 28 through 43. 28 through 43, you will see as we read that there is a a lot of repetition in this text. And this sermon uh, won't be so much focused on uh, this passage itself as as much as the theme that this passage raises, and and we'll look at several different uh, scriptures, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, So uh, get ready to to, to flip your Bibles. Keep your Bibles open with you after we read. Uh, This is God's Word. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And its king and its towns and every person in it, he left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its kings and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Back in 1814, you remember that year, don't you? 1814, a Russian author named uh, Ivan Krylov wrote a short story ironically entitled The Inquisitive Man. It's a story about a man who has just spent three hours in a natural history museum, and he's telling a friend about all that he saw there. And this is what he said to his friend. Upon my word, it is a palace of wonders. How rich nature is an invention. What birds and beasts haven't I seen there? What flies, butterflies, cockroaches, and little bits of beetles, some like emeralds, others like coral, and what tiny cochineal insects. Go look up what cochineal means. Why really, some of them are smaller than a pin's head. 
And the friend asks the inquisitive man, he says, but did you see the elephant? What did you think it looked like? I'll be bound, you felt as though you were looking at a mountain. The inquisitive man asked him, are you quite sure that there was an elephant there? And the, the friend says, well, quite sure. He says, well, brother, you mustn't be too hard upon me. But to tell you the truth, I didn't notice the elephant. Now that story by Mr. Ivan Kryloff, uh, thanks to a reference in 1872 by Dostoevsky, that story is likely the source of our uh, modern idiom, the elephant in the room, right? That big glaring issue that we fail to see, sometimes on purpose, we purposely ignore, right? While we notice all the little details around it, some smaller than a pin's head to use the language of Ivan Kryloff. Now, as we've been working our way through Joshua, we've been noticing a lot of little details about God, his power, and his grace, and what God calls us to do in response to his power and his grace, who he is, and what he has done for us. But through these weeks, there's been an elephant in the room that we haven't noticed. At least we haven't noticed it directly and head on. We've alluded to it. We've seen it uh, from a glance or from the side, perhaps. Uh, but for so many in our world today, uh, this question is one of the great obstacles of faith in the Bible. Uh, one of the great obstacles of faith in the God of the Bible. It's a question that you've perhaps heard before. It's a question that you've perhaps asked before. As you've read the Old Testament, you've wondered, how can I follow a God? How can I obey a God who commanded his people to devote to destruction, to utterly destroy, to leave none remaining of all the men, women, and children in the nations that lived in the promised land when Israel came in? We've seen in Joshua, Israel destroy Joshua and I. We've seen here in this text, Machedah and Libna and Lachish and Gezer and Eglon and Hebron and Debir. And in verse 40, you see the summary that explicitly references God's command. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the low land and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. How can we say that, that God is, is good, that God is just, that God is loving, if this is the way he tells his people to act? What are we as Christians to do with this story? Are we just to sort of skip over it and, and act like it's not there? Are we to try to explain it away? Well, that's the God of the Old Testament. And, you know, Old Testament people and gods, they were sort of mean and crazy, you know. But the, Old, the New Testament God's a God of love, right? Or are we supposed to take uh, this story, the story of, of Israel entering into the, the, the promised land? Is it a passage that we're to imitate today? Is the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, also one of jihad, of death to the infidels? I want us to think about this elephant in the text by asking this question. What is this utter destruction of which we read in this passage? What is this holy war in which, as Dean pointed out last week, and as we see it again referred to here in verse 42, the Lord God of Israel himself is fighting on behalf of Israel, is fighting for his people. What is this holy war? What is this utter destruction? Or, or to put it another way, why does God 
command his people to perform these acts of utter destruction of the Canaanite nations. Now, tonight I want to give you four 50,000-foot answers to this question. And just as Carl's points all began with D this morning, mine all begin with P, right? We do this as preachers because we want you to have easy way to outline and to, you know, to, to take notes in our sermons, but we also want you to be able to remember our sermons, right? We want you, particularly in this case, to remember these four words I'm about to give you because as you engage in, in apologetics and evangelism with, with unbelievers, this is likely going to be a question that will come up. They'll say, well, why should I believe in your God if he does this in the Old Testament? And so if you can take these four words and sort of you know, plant them deep within your mind and your heart so that when that happens, right, you will be ready to at least give one of the four. How about that? Right? But it's not just for you when you engage in apologetic or evangelistic conversations. For some of you here tonight, again, these are questions that you are struggling with, right? Some of you are not believers tonight. And so maybe it's been, that these questions have been questions that have kept you from faith. And so I want you to take to heart the things that we're about to look at in God's word. So here are the four Ps. First, punishment. Second, protection. Third, provision. And fourth, a picture. Punishment, protection, provision, and a picture. Ultimately, my prayer is that all of us would embrace these reasons as reasons that in God's mind, as he has revealed them to us in his word, are suitable, are appropriate, that they would, they would lead us ultimately to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would kick out the legs from under whatever objections we might have, and that we might see Jesus Christ alone as our only hope of rescue from the wrath to come. Which brings us to our first point. What's going on here, what this holy war is, why God commands this utter destruction, is first and foremost punishment. It is punishment. And as I said, this is really the most important part of the answer, but it absolutely does not fit the sensibilities of our day and age. Right? The first thing that we tend to think is... is how could God do this to these innocent men, women, boys, and girls? If I were God, I wouldn't do this. This is not the way that I would act. But of course, we aren't God. And how arrogant it is of us to think that we know better than God himself. Because here's the thing we must see about all these cities. They weren't innocent. They were not innocent in the least. In fact, as we read in the books of, of the Pentateuch, and particularly Deuteronomy, these cities were desperately wicked and vile and guilty. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, you would hear God say to Israel, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. God was punishing these nations righteously. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Flip back a few books in the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 18, God is commanding his people to abstain from sexual morality in all of its forms, incest, polygamy, adultery. He also mentions child sacrifice and idolatry. He speaks against homosexuality and bestiality. But look at what he says in verses 24 and following. He says this, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land 
became unclean. So I, that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you, they did all these abominations. So that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So you hear what God is saying here. From the oldest to the youngest, the Canaanites were guilty of sin, guilty of original sin and guilty of actual sins. They were guilty of all manner of evil against their neighbors, against their own family members, and of course, against the one true God. The land had vomited them out because they had defiled the land. They had become defiled in them themselves, unclean. And so it is with every single one of us by nature. There, there was, as there is in us, there was in them a holy, unholy habit, right? An, an, an unholy habit of heart and life. And they acted upon that day after day after day. In spite of God's goodness, in spite of his mercy to them, right? the clock had finally run out on these Canaanites. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to go back to Genesis 15, you would hear God telling Abraham, remember when he enters into that covenant with him where the pieces are split and Abraham falls asleep, right? and God himself walks through those split pieces entering into covenant with him. One of the things that God tells Abram in that day, in Genesis 15, is that he's going to, to, to make, that Abram's descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land, for over 400 years, but then he would bring them back into the land of Canaan. And then God says this, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God had given these Canaanites, these Amorites, more than 400 years to repent of their wickedness. He had sent them rain in its seasons. He has caused the crops to grow he gave them life and offspring and dominion over their land, all these good gifts. But instead of giving thanks in the face of God's goodness, they had only filled up the measure of their iniquity. Their cup had run over with sin. And finally, God has had enough. The clock has run out. God has now devoted them to destruction because of their sin, according to his holy and just will. And so what is going on here in the book of Joshua? What's going on is that the holy God is using his people Israel as the instrument of judgment. He is using Israel as the electric chair, as the hangman's noose, as the lethal injection, as the firing squad. They are executing God's justice according to his holy will. Like, we understand this, don't we? That if a government lets injustices happen, Let's offenses happen if they refuse to bring murderers and rapists and child abusers to justice. We would not call that good government. Well, in the same way, here we see God, who is a perfect king, a, a perfectly just judge, who always does what is right, as Abraham confessed before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God coming and finally bringing punishment upon the wicked nations that were in the land of Canaan. The kings in this passage, all their people had sinned grievously against God, and God is giving them exactly what they deserve. So that's the first P, punishment. Let us never forget that this is what we all deserve. This is what God gives to the nations of Canaan. But secondly, 
There's a second way to understand this utter destruction, and it is protection. Protection. Now, I'm not referring here to, to physical protection, to military protection, as if God is protecting the, 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 the southern flank of his people. All the cities that we've just read of in, in Joshua 10 were in the, the southern part of, of the promised land. So as Israel enters in from the east, right, it's not that God is, is concerned about protecting them from you know, attacks from the south. That's not what's going on here. Rather, it is spiritual protection. Spiritual protection. Turn back again, one book now, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy 7, we hear God command his people to devote these nations to complete destruction. You see it there in verse 1. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Right? So there it is. Complete destruction, utter destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. And now listen, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For, and here's the protection, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Do you see what God is, is saying? If, if, if you were to not destroy these nations, if you were to allow them to live, then you would be tempted to intermarry with them, with a, an, un, an ungodly, godless people. And they would turn your hearts away from following me, the one true God. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 20 when God says you must destroy them so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they do for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In fact, even after Israel has dispossessed the lands, God in Deuteronomy 12 warns his people in this way. He says, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods, that I may also do likewise? He says, you shall not behave thus to the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So do you see what, what God is saying? The reason why Israel must utterly destroy all the nations in the land of promise is because he knew that if any of them were left, they would lead his people into temptation, into sin, into idolatry, into detestable sin. Here's a picture for you. If you have a bowl of, of hot water, right, steaming hot water, and you take a, a bowl of cold water and you pour it into the hot water, right, the water in the original bowl does not remain hot, does it? It's not that that cold water becomes hot, it's that the hot water becomes cooler, right? The, the, the hot water loses temperature. Or, or to change the image, if you take a healthy person and you put him in a room, an, an enclosed room with a person who is sick with a flu or with COVID, it's not that the healthy person transmits his healthiness to the sick person. Quite the opposite, right? The sick person transmits his sickness to the well person. Well, God knows his people. He knows our proneness of heart. We are prone to follow the example of idolatry and sexual sin, even child sacrifice in these days. And so for Israel's own protection, 
He commands them to destroy every living person in the land of promise. Now, as we know from, if you've read the books of Judges and Kings, Israel doesn't do what God tells them to do. You know, we see him, Joshua doing it, Israel doing it here. But eventually, Israel stops doing what God has commanded. And they do more and more begin to follow the customs of the peoples of the land, even to the point of offering their children up in child sacrifice. And so what happens? The land vomits Israel out. Right? The land sends Israel out into exile. But God had told them to kill everyone in the land to protect his people spiritually so that there would be as little negative influence as possible as they lived in his place, in his presence, and under his rule. Which brings us to the third point. Punishment, protection, and now provision. Provision. The reason why God is saying clear these nations from here is because God designed for this particular land to be the land in which his people in this particular time could live in safety. That's what God was promising to Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. And we see that promise fulfilled even here in Joshua. Eventually Israel will take possession of these towns that they are destroying everyone in them, right? And they do this because God's design was that he might give rest to his people in this particular plot of ground at this particular time. But why did God want them to have a land? Why did God want them to have rest in that land and be protected from temptation and sin? Well, ultimately, it was because God's purpose and design was not merely to bless his people, right? not merely to, to bless Israel, but that Israel would be a blessing to all of the nations, to be a light to the nations. Now, this may make you scratch your head and you think, wait a minute. This is counterintuitive. God is, is saying, utterly destroy these nations so that Israel, you'll be a blessing to the nations. But here's the thing you've got to see. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, God commands his people that the way they fought against nations outside of the promised land was very different than the way they fought against nations inside the promised land. This, this holy war was not commanded in every single case. Rather, it was only the nations here in Canaan. They were to treat the nations outside of Canaan very differently. They were not to engage in holy war with those nations. And so we see that, that Yahweh's holy wars are very different than the jihads of Allah, right? Yahweh's wars were for a specific period of time, for a specific purpose in a specific place to clear out these particular nations from this particular plot of ground for this particular purpose so that his people might have a place from which they might grow and from which might come the Christ, the seed of the woman who had been promised in Genesis chapter 3, the, the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed, the seed of Judah to whom would be given kingship and rule, the great prophet greater than Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18 who would come and speak the word of God, a word of blessing, not just for Israel, the Jews, but for all the nations. From this place, from this nation of Israel that would form came the Messiah. Haven't we read this in, in Romans chapter 9 through 11? Right? All the promises of God found their fulfillment because Israel as a nation had a land, had a place, but in order for them to have a place, God and his punishment and his protecting of his people had to clear out these other nations. 
But from Israel came Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, as a fulfillment of all God's purposes, so that even the nations, as we've seen in Acts chapter 10, even the nations, even Cornelius, might turn from his wickedness, might turn to Jesus Christ in faith and bring rest, not merely a physical rest, but an eternal rest, a spiritual rest, a rest from our sin. Jesus came into the world that he might purchase this rest for all the nations, and he did it by utterly destroying the spiritual powers and authorities and kings that held the nations captive. And he did it by himself becoming the recipient of God's holy war. Which brings us to the final P. Punishment, protection, provision, and finally, a picture. A picture. See, this story of the conquest of Canaan is ultimately a picture, a foreshadowing of something that was going to take place both on an individual scale and on a cosmic scale. On an individual scale, what we see here is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of our Savior who came into this world in his first coming in order to be the recipient of God's holy war against sin. Jesus Christ bears the punishment of God in the place of his people. He bears the wrath of God in the place of sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus comes himself not only to bear holy war, but to execute holy war against the devil, against his demonic forces. Through his death, Colossians 2 tells us, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, even the devil and its spiritual powers. That's Hebrews 2. Colossians 2 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He triumphed over them through the cross. It's again, Genesis 3.15. Satan bruises Jesus on the heel, but in so doing, his head is crushed. He has dealt the mortal blow. Jesus takes holy war upon himself, bearing the punishment of his people, and dishes holy war out against Satan on the cross. But here's the, the second part of that picture, the, the, the cosmic. The, 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 Jesus' war against the demons is a part of that cosmic picture, but there's another part of the cosmic picture. It's this, that one day Jesus is going to come again. And if you are a sinner whose sins have not been atoned for, by the sacrifice that God requires, even the cross of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your trust in the finished work of Jesus, then you will bear holy war in your own person. You will suffer the wrath of God. You will be condemned on that last day. You will face the wrath of the Lamb of God. He who bore sin on the cross, he will deliver God's wrath. He will deliver God's punishment. This utter destruction of Canaan is a picture. It's a type, a foreshadowing of what will happen on the last day. Again, listen to Revelation 19, where John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, alluding to Psalm 2 that we've sung this evening. You see, there is a wrath to come. And part of the reason why the world cannot stand the book of Joshua and the story that it tells is because they do not like and love and will never like and love this idea of the wrath of God. 
But the Bible tells us that God's wrath is real. It is coming. And if you are not trusting in Christ, then this will be your reality. If you are trusting in Christ, then you know that Jesus has taken this wrath for you. And so this story of Canaan's utter destruction paints another picture for you, doesn't it? It paints a picture of the spiritual warfare that we all as believers must engage in. We wage a holy war not against physical enemies, not against the nations physically, personally. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the world forces of darkness, the spiritual powers and principalities. And so we take up that whole armor of God to fight against sin, to fight against Satan, to fight against the world and all of its seductive power. The weapons of our warfare are are not carnal, not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of spiritual fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing, says Paul, that's raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We're fighting against the lust of our flesh. Right? We're seeking to do, to do battle, presenting the members of our body as, as instruments, as weapons of righteousness. We're, we're laying aside the deeds of darkness and taking up, putting on the armor, the weapons of light. We are doing this so that our light might shine. So we might go forth into the nations and see the nations not killed, but converted by our own being killed, our own suffering, even to the point of martyrdom and death. We go and bring the gospel so that by our good deeds, they might glorify our Father in heaven. We give our lives for the nations, which is a form of holy war, spiritually speaking, so that they might come to know Jesus, that they might come to know the one who has taken the wrath upon himself so that even the nations might be spared that wrath. So there they are, the four Ps that I hope help you to understand some reason why God is acting the way he is and commanding his people to execute this vengeance upon the nations. Punishment, protection, provision, and a picture, a foreshadowing of something that has happened and will happen when Jesus returns I can't read texts like this without thinking of an illustration I once heard from Brian Habig back when I was in RUF. He asked this question, I think he was preaching on Psalm 2, and he said, if a train is is barreling down the railroad tracks and you are on those railroad tracks, where is the only safe place to be? Think of that question. If a train is barreling down the railroad tracks and you are on those railroad tracks, Where is the only safe place to be? It's sort of a riddle, right? A theological riddle. And here's the answer. The only safe place to be is in the train. In the train. If you are inside the train that is barreling down the railroad tracks, you are safe. And how does Psalm 2 end? It says, kiss the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You must hide yourself in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the word of God who is coming to bring the judgment of God, the vengeance of God upon all who do not know him. The only safe place to be is inside that train. Judgment is coming. We have a foretaste of it even here in this text. 
But Jesus Christ himself was judged in the place of sinners so that all who put their trust in him, all of his sheep, all of those who are called by the name of God, who are chosen by grace, who look to the Lamb of God as the only shadow, the only refuge, the only hiding place, if you are in him, you are safe. Turn to Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, by your grace, would you bring us all inside the train that is Jesus Christ, the one who is our protection, but the one who is also the agent of your just punishment. Oh Father, we pray that as we wrestle with the scriptures, that the things we've heard tonight would be a help to us. Lord, that you would be pleased to give us eyes to see, that we would understand your word, that we would understand our sin, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are the glorious God as we heard this morning. And yet you are a God, not only of holy wrath, but a God of holy love. And so, Father, we pray that we would know the depths of, of both the wisdom and the knowledge, the rich mercy that you've given to sinners in Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, open blind eyes, convert dead hearts. Lord, we pray that you would give us refuge in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.